Welcome to this, the 16th in the Thrive London Good Thinking series of podcasts during the coronavirus pandemic. My name is Tracy Parr, and I'm the Director of Transformation for Good Thinking, London's Digital Mental Wellbeing Service. The digital present and future is a confusing and complex place for children. Many families are currently juggling competing demands from homeschooling to money concerns. They're also grappling with the challenges their children face in the digital world as we live through changes not seen since the Industrial Revolution. In this podcast, our psychiatrist for good thinking, Dr Richard Graham, is in discussion with Sonia Livingston, who's the Professor of Social Psychology at the London School of Economics and author of Parenting for a Digital Future. Sonia provides insights and advice about parenting in the digital present and future. Cellos, optional. Over to you, Richard and Sonia. Thank you, Tracy, And thank you, Sonia, for giving us of your time today. Thank you. As author of Parenting for a Digital Future, and in fact, leading a program on that at the London School of Economics, could you tell us what thoughts you've been having about how parents might be able to sort of think about and engage with some of the issues that they might be facing now that children are at home, having their education delivered through technology, and basically being able to spend much more time online than they were a few months ago? Yes, absolutely. I've spent the last few years interviewing parents from all walks of life, really, and trying to understand how they were already grappling with the challenges of our digital world, and especially how they were thinking about bringing up their children, knowing that the world is going to get even more digital. And so, you know, in interviewing lots of different kinds of families, I was already very aware of the incredible diversity of families. So when, you know, we all moved into this lockdown world, I've been seeing a lot of talk in the media about how families are coping somehow as if they're all the same and as if they're all rather anxious and as if perhaps coping with digital media is a real challenge to them. And yet what my research really shows or suggests to me is they will be coping in very different ways and they will be facing an incredible range of both challenges but also opportunities now that children you know, are spending so much more time with screen media than they were before. And so you're sort of familiar with different sort of approaches, I guess, that families might take to the amount of time that young people are engaged with technology, what they're using it for, but perhaps more importantly, what they also do together. Right. So that was one of the kind of most common findings, looking across all the different ways families kind of arrange their lives and, and live with their digital media, is that we live in a funny time where families used to be much more kind of forced to live together in relatively small spaces. We've had a the last... I don't know, a few decades in which families have gone more in their separate ways. And the worry has been how, how kind of individualised they were and how children and family members were all living their different lives somehow with their own screens and their own headphones. So I, I now look at that research and think, well, suddenly we're back into that moment when everyone is living together, uh, often in quite small spaces. But what I was seeing across all those different families is how often parents use digital media as a way of bringing people together, as a way of finding something that they can enjoy together, first and foremost, and then as a way of spending time together in a way that 
can allow parents to have some other kinds of conversations. You know, maybe it's in front of the soap opera that parents can raise some of the difficulties that their teens might be facing. Or it might be in front of CBBs that parents can kind of get rid of their inhibitions and get down on the floor and play with their children. Or, you know, whatever it is, the thing that brings people together in a way that lets them get on with all the other things that they, they kind of need to do as a family, but often find quite hard to get started with. And I think what you seem to be highlighting for me is we're in a curious time where the opportunities of the technology to help us cope with issues and challenges way beyond what the technology brings into the home in a way that is actually probably quite stimulating and leading to all sorts of more positive ways of engaging with that tech. Well, I think in some ways, yes. I don't want to dismiss the many struggles and difficulties families are facing because I know that being locked down is incredibly hard for some and that parents are feeling really burdened by having to homeschool and worry about money and juggle impossible, you know, competing demands and worry about the people who aren't in the home with them as well as the people who are. So, you know, there's lots of struggles, but I do also hear a discussion going on now that resonates with my research about how people now feel perhaps they can do some of the things they have been wanting to do. They can play with the person in front of them. They can do a bit more kind of craft work with their children. They've got a bit more time maybe to read and play games together. And, you know, some of those things I think people are really reflecting on. You know, I mean, I could give you some kind of examples from their research about how I saw very different approaches of families trying to do that. So, for example, I always remember going into this very small flat with Daisy and Jacob and their small children. And I bumped into the papier-mâché kind of craft work that was hanging from the ceiling as soon as I went in. And there was sort of photography project work and various things. They were a very arty family, though they didn't have very much money. And what I found very striking was that they were taking that kind of aesthetic, that kind of interest that they had as parents, not only into their play with their children, but also into the way in which they kind of curated the computer games that their children could play and the websites that their children might visit. You know, they said, this is who our family is. We have this kind of creative way of being. And they kind of brought the digital world into that. So they generated this kind of coherence across offline and online. You know, they were very kind of enthusiastic about the potential for the digital world there. So I guess what I was thinking about is, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but we both are very familiar with the messages around online safety. And I, I often kind of think about those as I would public health messages. And sometimes safety messages can have unintended consequences. And, and I, I thought what you were touching on, although some of what you're describing, of course, is pre-lockdown, is there may be something also that is leading to a sort of deeper engagement in this curation between offline and online that is actually quite facilitating. And it's not just about protection and risk management and avoidance, but actually something that is more facilitating as you say, your identity as a family or a wider family or, or even with friends, that there's a kind of a different permission, it struck me. I mean, of course, you know, the questions about safety online are so important. And what we know now is that there are lots of 
in some ways enhanced risks because young people are online so much at the moment and often without their kind of parents watching. And I'm a passionate advocate of the view that parents should not be watching their children all the time. And children do need to take kind of some measure of risk because that's how they grow and learn to cope and become resilient and gain confidence. So I think it's an interesting moment. I know parents will be grappling with this, but you know, ultimately, safety is the thing that somehow we need to get a grip on, we need people to be aware of. But it's all the other reasons that children and families want to go online, want to engage with digital media that somehow we need to create a space for. So yes, the safety conversation is important. Yes, the protections are important. But, you know, if if that's all there was, we would just take the tech away. I mean, let's think again, you know, why do families, and, and this is something else I found very striking. I went into families that were rich and poor and lived in tiny spaces and big spaces, but all of them had invested in technology. All of them were trying to buy whatever they could afford to kind of have the latest. And that's where, you know, those ideas about the future come in, that parents really do believe somehow the kids have got to learn how to manage this and to get the most of it and to see that technology isn't just a kind of fun or risk in your kind of immediate present, but it's your pathway to wherever this society is going. And I think it's that longer view that parents often have in mind. So that's where they're trying to find, you know, can they find kind of creative and interesting ways through the digital world? Or can they get to the best educational resources so their children can learn? Or, you know, I interviewed a number of families where the children had special educational needs and often those parents were very intensely invested in how the digital world could offer a kind of workaround for some of the difficulties that their children faced in the physical world, in the real world, as it were. One of the sort of areas of guidance that remained intensely controversial, if I can put it in those terms, for many years was the concept of screen time. And again, the context of thought and or even guidance around screen time must be radically different now. And I'm just wondering whether you in your work, and I guess it's probably too soon to say, given that we are living through also a natural experiment of being much more on screen, do you have any thoughts about how parents might think about that? Or, or is it just simply not an issue now? Oh, I think it is still an issue. But we need to think carefully what kind of an issue it is. So what we saw before lockdown, before coronavirus, was a mounting and I think really kind of thoughtful debate from experts across kind of different areas of child development and well-being that were saying two simple rules about so many hours a day or at what age. Those rules about screen time were becoming counterproductive. They were misguided, partly because the evidence when you look closely to say that, you know, two hours of screen time is fine and two and a half hours is a problem and the evidence just isn't there. And then because simple rules sound like they're going to appeal to parents because they're busy and they don't want to have to address too much complexity and they'd, you know, like someone to tell them what's good or bad. But actually those simple rules had become really a kind of rod for parents to beat themselves with. And so many parents in my fieldwork kind of greeted me with a a look of guilt, like say, oh no, I've let them have three hours today, or I'm a bad parent, I can't manage how long they're spending on their smartphone, whatever it is. So they became a kind of a way that parents felt guilty and they became a, a game for children, a way of getting around. Oh, you know, parents are waking up a bit late so I can sneak a bit of screen time in the morning or, you know, 
whatever it is. And I saw in a survey of parents I did as well that screen time had become the thing that parents and children fought about. It was its own cause of conflict. So, you know, with all of those thoughts in mind, I don't want to say there's anything good about lockdown, but it certainly forced the point that it's time to change the screen time dynamic. That's not to say that it's good for kids to be staring at a screen 24-7. And, you know, that's where we need to begin a new debate, not about how long they're on exactly, but what they're doing. Is it benefiting them? You know, is it kind of part of their choice and their identity and their worldview? And is it stopping them doing all the other things that are also good for them, like talking to people face to face and interacting and making eye contact and having a laugh and getting out And of course, getting out is the problem of the moment, but uh, that's what a lot of parents have always worried about. They're on their screens instead of being outside. Now they can't get outside anyway. Well, you've been undertaking a bit of a listening project with Partnership for Young London, talking to young people between 13 and 24. And one of the preliminary findings, I guess, is rather like you're saying with families, that there's a considerable amount of diversity in how much People might value offline meetups versus video chat, social media contact with others. And so for some people, lockdown is kind of bringing them closer through technology. For others, they're finding that lack of getting out and having some offline meetups with where I guess you're in the presence of others, really challenging. And I guess for for both of us, really listening to families, to young people is key to our work. But there isn't a simple rule of thumb. For some, it's better and for some, it's not. I agree. And I think what happened when we were suddenly all locked down in our homes is everyone became hyper aware of who's in the home and who isn't in the home. And, you know, if you live in a comfortable and happy nuclear family and everyone's under the same roof, then there are some possibilities and some ways of, you know, finally getting to spend some time together instead of rushing around as we all do. And that has seemed very welcome to some. But if you're a child who is split between two households because your parents are separated, if you are a family of refugees and migrants whose significant other people are somewhere completely different, if you're on your own, you know, if you're you know, the young person perhaps who's kind of just moved out and was just going to start their own life and suddenly you realise you're on your own and perhaps lonely. Lockdown kind of found us wherever we were and everyone had a kind of balance of what you could do within the home and what was really important to you outside the home. And sometimes the digital media have been a boon in building those links. Some people were relying on them anyway. You know, I interviewed lots of families with you know, diasporic connections in different parts of the world where grandparents were already on digital media, already, you know, part of family life because of Skype or Zoom or whatever, whereas other families are just figuring that out for the first time. You know, so yes, very different circumstances and families live in very unequal circumstances, of course. And that's why it's so hard to generalise about how people are faring and, and, and where the challenges are. That's a very powerful argument for any recommendations or guidance being bespoke, really. Absolutely. Taking into consideration the context of the person you're talking with and understanding the complexity of the lives many young people now live. And perhaps, you know, one output of this strange phase we're living through 
is that we get better at having those conversations or better at listening to the complexities of those contexts that mean any use of technology, social media, video chat, whatever, is going to be influenced far more by the context than the technology itself. Yes, I, th- I think that's right. And something else that came through to me very strongly from the research I was doing is how much parents feel other people are judging them and that they kind of sometimes take those judging voices into themselves and become incredibly critical and that digital media have become a kind of a site where those judgments are made. So, you know, people have regaled me for the last few years about, did you see that family who, you know, everyone was on their smartphone in the cafe? Or did you see that parent staring at the phone when they pushed their child along? You know, that kind of sense of judgment, which parents find incredibly undermining, though, you know, it's common. And having had the privilege of being invited into so many families' homes and hearing their stories, I just want to keep saying to the judges, if you like, this might be somebody whose home is abusive. This might be somebody, you know, needs to get away and is looking for help. These might be people living in a state of stress who just need to spend a bit of calm time being kind of co-present. But families can't sustain meaningful and positive conversations with each other the whole time. And sometimes they just want to be together or they want to be apart or they want to tune out for sometimes some very deep reasons. And we don't know that they're wasting their time. We don't know that they're avoiding, you know, happy, positive conversations with loved others. We don't know how their lives are going. So I hope that people aren't judging parents just now, but I also would love parents to free themselves of that judging voice themselves because they really are facing a lot of challenges. And if you need to tune out and scroll through your social media, even when your child is there, you know, I would understand why sometimes that's the best way of calming down, of, of getting back your equilibrium. And it certainly sounds like talking with or observing those situations from a position of compassion first, as you say, rather than judgment. But it does present a challenge, I guess, to many professionals who have been schooled in child development theories or family systems theory, whatever it is, that perhaps all is in need of an overhaul at this point, as we are living differently, and certainly for the last month, extraordinarily so. I think it's become shall I say, convenient for some of those professionals to kind of fixate on the screen as the sign of the family's problems. And I would say, let's think about what we want for families. So if we want, as we do, parents of young children to kind of do some physical play and make eye contact and respond to their child, then let's say to the parents, that's what we want them to do. And that is good for the child. And that is what child development theory says. Rather than oh, you're letting them watch the screen too much, or oh, put that smartphone away. You know, it's a distraction, but it isn't really the point. I mean, the point is, and parents need to understand what we want for them, not what they're always doing wrong. So if we want direct play, physical rough and tumble play with the toddlers, say so. If we want meaningful conversations with teenagers over a family meal, because that's a good time for sitting down and talking, don't say, put your smartphone away, don't bring your smartphone to table. You know, Don't focus on the negative. Say, this is what we want. This is what we believe is good for you. I mean, I think, you know, people understand that and they get the message much more clearly than thinking somehow family life is all about bad things we're doing with our technology. And similarly with kind of, you know, going out and exercising when we are allowed to or if it's safe to do so. 
what we want is for children to get enough exercise and to, you know, kind of throw themselves about a bit and feel the fresh air. And, you know, I really hope that families are having the opportunity to do that now. But that's what we want. So let's just say that. Let's not say, oh, that's too much TV. That's too much screen time. You know, it, the, the screen has become the convenient way, I think, for everybody to not say what they really mean, but somehow to create this new sort of bogeyman of it's all about the screen. Well, it isn't. It's about interaction. It's about social life. It's about exercise. It's about imagination. It's about learning. So let's focus on those. It reminds me that for some time I was trying to write, as I painfully did on digital resilience, a sort of definition of what digital well-being might be. But the problem was always that you could not exclude any offline well-being aspects and that well-being is well-being, and the digital bit is there, uh, but so is the offline bit. And I think that sounds absolutely appropriate to sort of say to families, you know, it's being sort of happy and functioning well in, in that broad sense around well-being, whatever really, whether you are choosing to use screens or not, or do offline activities, you know, as with most things, a balance is there to be struck. But yeah, digital well-being perhaps similarly focuses inappropriately on the screen too much. Yeah, the balance is there to be struck. And actually, that's one of the main metaphors that we use in our book on Parenting for Digital Future, which is that mostly families seek a kind of balance in their lives. And they sometimes want a balance around the media, or they even use the media as a way of kind of managing that balance. So it becomes a way of saying, well, we'll sit together and we'll watch this. And we found other families, interestingly, and we don't talk about these so much, for whom digital technologies are their ways of being together. So, you know, we interviewed some kind of seriously geeky families. And one I, I was always very struck with was um, a mum called Danny and her 12-year-old son, Josh. And when I met them, and they had a kind of polite conversation with me for a little while until I began to ask them about you know, their technologies. And they just launched into such a fascinating conversation about kind of geeking out together and learning about technology. The boy was learning to code. Danny was kind of connecting all the computers in her home and kind of setting her son Minecraft challenges and coding challenge. And that was their way of being together. And it was incredibly interactive and it was incredibly face-to-face -face interactive and all about learning and all about identity and values. But it was with the technology. And, you know, Danny said uh, very memorably to me that coding is the new Latin and it's the future. And I'm excited about this digital future. And that was her commitment with her son. You know, so not everyone wants a balance, but everyone finds their balance or we hope they find their balance. And we have to allow for that being very different from somebody else's. It also sounds to me that we kind of need to flip, and I, I think I can say this talking to a professor, the famous quote of Tolstoy, I think from Anna Karenina, about one type of happy family and infinite varieties of unhappy families, I think is the quote, and <laughs> probably be shot by uh, an academic about that. But actually, I think what you seem to be saying is there's an infinite variety of kind of ways families can achieve that living well together, happier sort of way of being together that is very difficult outside of that family to judge in a sense. And perhaps those things happen where, you know, something is impaired or, or blocked in terms of development or mental health. I, I don't know quite how, but there's a lot more to learn about those infinite varieties of happy families, it seems to me. 
I love that you use that quote because we have that quote in the book and I contest it in exactly that way, of course. All happy families are not the same, absolutely. And there are many ways of being happy as, as we really did try to pursue. But that doesn't mean that unhappy families are all the same. And I think the other point and the more sobering point really is all the very different kinds of struggles. So as I said, you know, families with children with very different kinds of special educational needs or we talked to a number of single parent families on incredibly low incomes and struggling and really quite isolated people who you know didn't always feel included or welcome in, in the particular community they were in, you know, all kinds of. So, yes, unhappy families are, are diverse. Unhappy families are diverse. And it's just a complicated world. And speaking of which, one of the things we're trying to anticipate at Good Thinking is in this time where change is, it feels very rapid and continuous, we are looking at some point ahead, and we can't know when, to restrictions falling away and returning to at least certain activities that would have been there before. I, I don't think anyone's expecting education is going to remain you know, just a screen-based activity. Any thoughts on how we might be supporting parents and young people sort of in their adjustments of coming out of lockdown? Perhaps it's a big question for all of us, but any wisdom from your research and conversations with families would be very welcome. Well, one of the things I might say is that most of the parents that I interviewed had a sense of missed opportunities, as it were, paths that they would like to pursue for their family, that they felt there were barriers or difficulties or they didn't quite know how to express that. And that was sometimes in relation to their child's school and a way in which they felt that something that, you know, their child needed or would be beneficial they kind of couldn't get the attention of the school or the teachers. And it would be nice to think that during lockdown, those families are finding ways of kind of giving their child what they need, and some will and some won't. But clearly, children will have had a very diverse experience in this last month and the weeks to come. And there will be some interesting struggles insofar as they are kind of put back into the system. And parents have had time to reflect on whether their child has thrived and benefited from these few weeks of more attention or if it's been awful and they just want to get back to how things were. So it is a time to listen to parents and it, it, I think it will be a time for a bit of fresh thinking and conversation between parents and teachers or parents and the other kind of professionals that they engage with because a lot of people want to get back to how things were when it's all over. But I think we've also had a, a chance to think how, how things could be different and maybe better. I think that's right. I think, again, the theme that's come through our listening to young people is that this is a time of extraordinary self-reflection for them, that, that there's just so much time to be in contact with yourself and similarly for families. But what comes through very powerfully, what you're saying to me, is that there will be things that we won't want to lose that we discovered through lockdown. And again, going back to that infinite variety of happy and unhappy families, that there are things we may wish to take with us. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, of course, the release of lockdown and our kind of moving into whatever it is to come next will be full of all kinds of practicalities. But I hope there will be time also to give people space to 
remember the resolutions they made, perhaps, or the hopes that they found time to kind of frame or the, the steps that they wanted to take so that, you know, we won't come out of it into the same world that we went in. But if families can be heard a little more, you know, one of the other things we wrote about in the book, people people kind of look at the parent as a way of getting to the child. They're really interested in the child, and rightly so. But parents don't want to be invisible, and they also have kind of thoughts and hopes and fears. You know, so I hope we don't all kind of rush past the parent in thinking, what does the child need? But we listen to the parent as well, because, you know, when it comes to it, the parent is not only, you know, person in their own right, but also they remain the biggest influence on their child and their frustrations a problem and their hopes could benefit their child if they're attended to. Yeah, that sounds like a really important lesson for us in the public sector to be holding on to as we navigate this next phase of the pandemic. Now seems to me rather cruel to be talking about leaving pandemic, Sonia, because (laughs) we have developed a a bit of a habit during these podcasts to invite you and, and in a sense to invite our listeners to get to know you a little better by presenting you with a, a sort of thought experiment, really, in which we ask, if you had been able, at the time of going into isolation or lockdown, had been able to take three famous or prominent people with you, who would you have taken? <laughs> I'm hoping they don't all have to be alive, though I'd like them alive in my lockdown world, my Corona Desert Island. Uh, yes, you could take a corpse, I suppose. But <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, Richard. <laughs> well, I was thinking as I struggle to stretch each morning that if I could have a famous yoga master in the room with me showing me how to get through my Ashtanga flow, that would have been very inspiring and now I would be very fit. And if I could please have Yo-Yo Ma as well and a cello, then I think I might have got back to my childhood dream of being a cellist. Right. Okay. So that's two. So you're going to be calm and flexible and sort of moved by Yo-Yo Ma. My third person, I would like to take George Eliot with me, please. She wrote the best book, I think, of Middlemarch. She wrote at a time when we were just entering this extraordinary modern world. She was an early feminist. I would love to have time to talk with her. Yes, and a powerful reminder that we can always learn from history and particularly the Industrial Revolution as a time of such turmoil as well. Exactly. I've been thinking, how how do we get to this crazy point? How do we get where globalisation and industrial development and the modern world has brought us to such a terrible moment? And maybe if we went back to a few hundred years and thought about that moment, I don't know. I don't know if we could have done it differently. But uh, to take with you somebody with an extraordinary capacity to be in touch with her own self and also the lives of those around her and uh, create something so meaningful. Yeah, well, that sounds like a very rewarding, perhaps a bit worthy for some. I know. Where, where's the jokes? Or maybe I'll have to have Monty Python as well. Can I take them with me too? Oh, usually with any psychologist, you always get a, sort of breaking down a few boundaries. <laughs> Okay, you're allowed to take a piece of media. You've got Yo-Yo Ma in there, so I don't know whether you're going to be okay. And George Eliot makes up for music, but book, film, piece of music, even a recording of a sporting event or something similar. There's no way I want any sports anywhere near me. No, I'm sorry about that. Well, I don't know. Maybe I would take my favourite collection of Jane Austen novels, and they always bear rereading. 
I just worry that Miss Elliot might find that a bit annoying. But... I know, I realise. <laughs> I, I thought about taking Jane Austen with me since you're being so generous. But uh... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm just trying to hope that the yoga master can somehow help with George Eliot's tensions around Jane Austen. He's going to keep the peace. <laughs> it's your choice. And then finally, some sort of luxury. I think I'm going to need a cello. Yes, yes. I think I would like a very beautiful, a very resonant, rather old cello and a large amount of rosin for the bow. Yes, I think we would need to consider whether one Yo-Yo Ma is a patient man. <laughs> He'd better be. <laughs> he's going to need to be. And two, <laughs> whether he's going to want to be spending his time in isolation teaching the cello. <laughs> I would dare suggest, if you're talking of childhood, you may be a little rusty at this point. <laughs> Very. <laughs> <laughs> but that would certainly help you pass away the time. And as with all you've said, if we can all leave the situation with something a little more than we entered with, that would be a very nice thing. But recognising for many, there will also be much that is lost, sadly. So thank you so much, Sonia. That's been a wonderful account of your research. And, and I guess people could read further about that in the book, Parenting for a Digital Future. Yes, it's going to come out in a couple of months. Um, hard to believe, given that nothing seems to be happening, but books can still be published. And I'm excited that it's coming out. Well, it sounds like a really nice way, particularly for those of us in children's services, to kind of think of how we can grow to adapt to the world we're moving into, rather than looking back to theories that maybe really should be belong to a different time. So um, thank you again. Thank you so much for talking to me.